This morning's reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I know what you're thinking, what is he going to say about this passage (laughs) in a mixed audience with children present? For the record, it's not my fault your children are here. (laughs) Well, sometimes to get your bearings, you use a compass. Oh, that's becoming pretty rare, isn't it? But compass, you know, a manual compass, which uh, takes... Uh, magnetic north, and it figures out where north is, and then from that you can determine where east and south and west is, unless you are in the Bongi magnetic anomaly, which, as you might have guessed, is is in the Bongi city, uh, which is in Central African, uh, the Central African Republic, so right, almost right at the center of Africa, so a very, it's an anomaly, right, so it's a weird place in the sense that it has a, a high concentration of iron uh, in the ground, and it actually messes up compasses. So what seems to be north changes on you. It's in a, a kind of permanent state of flux, actually. And I just thought that was a good image of our culture when it comes to marriage and sexuality, or marriage and divorce. All, the, all those issues are present in our text this morning that what was north a decade ago is now south, and what was south 100 years ago is now north, and any, on any given day, north might be changing on you. To find due north, well, that's an impossibility in our culture. And that's a big deal. When you start changing rules or making up rules about marriage and sex, that's no small thing. It doesn't lead to more happiness, and certainly not more holiness. It leads, in fact, to the opposite. So with the rise of confusion about marriage and sexuality in our culture, it's in some ways not surprising at all that there's a a significant rise in things like depression or anxiety. The way you find happiness and holiness is you live your life according to God's word. This is the, the true north, the true north that never changes. And so when we live our life according to that word, then we find happiness and holiness. But the confusion of our day makes our time a lot like the time in which Paul's writing his letter to the Corinthians. 
So he's writing to the church that's in the city of Corinth, which is about 40 miles southwest of Athens, as any compass can tell you. 40 miles southwest of Athens. And like other Roman cities at the time, its morals were fluid and loose, and due north was impossible to find if you're just going to look around at the culture itself. But then, in about the year AD 51, the gospel came to Corinth. So the Apostle Paul came with his ministry uh, band of ministers, and they preached the gospel. People were converted, and a church was planted in this, this Roman city. Now, it was a young church, and they had grown up in a culture very opposed to basic biblical teaching, and so they got confused about a lot of things. And in that confusion, sometimes they, they went astray in their behavior, and sometimes they just had questions. They didn't know what, actually, what, what is north when it comes to marriage and sexuality, and so they would write letters to Paul and say, so what's the deal here? And actually, when we get to chapter 7, we start getting into some of the specific answers uh, to questions that they had. Uh, in letters that they wrote to him. And so he's writing back in response. Now our series is Being God's People. Now we're about halfway through the book of Corinthians, as you can tell, we're in chapter seven out of 16. Being God's People is the, is the theme for the whole series. And when it comes to being God's people, there are a few things we need to get as right as marriage and sexuality. So if you're gonna be God's people, then you need to be God's people in these two areas of our lives. Now, we stopped at verse 9 just just for the sake of practicality. We actually are going to cover verses 10 through 16, which are seven verses on divorce. And that might not sound like a lot in terms of number of verses, but they're very significant. Uh, They fill out the teaching of Jesus and his teaching on divorce, which I'll reference a couple times. But when you take Paul's seven verses here and you add Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, then you you get the more complete New Testament picture on marriage and divorce. And as the elders over the last several years have been working on this topic of marriage and divorce, these verses have been probably, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the number of hours we've spent studying, these, these have generated the most discussion and the most time. And so I, uh, probably most of what I say this morning will be familiar, but some of it might be new. Some of it is actually new to the elders in terms of our position on certain things. And I'll just say at the outset, please, if you have any questions, talk to any of the elders. We'll be happy to um, set, up, set up time to go over our, our perspective on these things. And the other thing to say about marriage and divorce is nobody approaches this in, a, in an abstract, distant kind of way. We, all, we really care about these issues because, we, because we've all been, I mean, it's hard to overstate how affected we individually have been by marriages and divorces. And so we don't approach this, uh, you know, as some obscure uh, minutia when it comes to studying eschatology. You know, we can debate all day long about that, that minute point of eschatology, and it is, it is important, but we don't have the same personal vested interest in it like we might when it comes to marriage and divorce. That's a very personal matter. You're, 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 you're affecting us deeply at that point. And so we, we do understand that. And the other side of these marriage and divorce discussions is the, the number of things that are specific to couples is significant. And so I'm, I'm going to lay out principles this morning. That's what God gives us in his word, principles. But when it comes to a specific situation, there's always details and nuances and specifics that only time and investigations and a careful process sometimes can uncover. So we, we were aware of that as well. So all that is just to, just to say again, if you have questions or concerns, please just set up time to talk with one of the elders. Now the overarching 
pursuit of God in these verses is that we would live happy and holy lives in our singlehood and in our marriage. That we'd live happy and holy lives in our marriages and in our singlehood. Whichever God has given to us in that place, we want to live happy and holy lives. So we're going to to do four points this morning. First point is marriage and sex. The second point is marriage and singlehood, which will actually be the shortest point because Mike is going to cover uh, more of the, he's going to cover the rest of the chapter next week, and that actually goes into singlehood in a more developed way. But marriage and singlehood is point two, and then point three, marriage and divorce between believers, and then point four, marriage and divorce between a believer and an unbeliever. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is, it is indeed the compass that tells us what true north is. And we know oftentimes the, the difficulty we have is not in knowing what your Bible says, but it is choosing to live according to what it says. So we do pray for a humility as we hear your word. Uh, we pray that it would prick us, affect us. We pray that we would more and more, day by day, conform our lives to its teaching. It is, it is indeed a, a great and wonderful gift you've given to us, Lord, in leaving us these 66 books. Lord, you didn't have to do that. That was an unnecessary gift on your part, and yet you did. And yet as we approach these words this morning, Paul's words in chapter 7, of course, in, in all of his words in the book of 1 Corinthians, we recognize our own limitations when it comes to uh, understanding your word. We're not omniscient. Only you are omniscient. You are the God who reveals, and we do our best to hear that revelation well. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, minds to think biblically about your truth. And we pray for our marriages and for our our lives as singles, and pray, Lord, that we would indeed live happy and holy lives as we live more and more according to your standards. Speak to us, we pray this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Point one, marriage and sex. If you recall, Paul finished chapter six with this command, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. Now in chapter six, he was speaking against a sin, speaking against the sin of sexual immorality. But that glorify God in your body ties to chapter seven. Now we glorify God in our bodies in our marriages. So his, his word about sexual immorality in the last chapter was what not to do. Don't have sex with prostitutes. Actually, that was his command. Don't commit sexual immorality in chapter six. And then in chapter seven, it's what we should do, what we, what we are to do, and that is to have sex in, in our marriages. So he starts off verse one. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, Literally, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but that's, that's just a euphemism, which the ESV has, has rightly translated, actually, sexual relations with a woman. It's in quotations, which means it was in a letter that they sent to him. So they had questions about this issue. And the best way to understand the issue, it's not whether or not someone should have sex. That's not actually the question that they had. They're, they're in a culture where the, the common practice was that if... That, a man would, uh, to have legitimate children, he would have sex with his wife. But sex for pleasure, you did it through your slaves or through other women. And so that the connection between marriage and sex wasn't as absolute as it, should, as it, needed, as it needed to be. 
So that's the cultural background that we get here. And so they were, they were confused about how to, how to live out to their lives. It wasn't that necessarily that the Corinthians themselves were adopting that lifestyle, but that was, that was the confusion of the culture around them. And his response to them is forceful. But to understand this well, I think we need to go, we need to go back a bit. In fact, all the way back. So this is Genesis 2.24. And this verse actually will kind of, uh, it, it, in some ways, cast a shadow over the entire passage. Genesis 2.24 God speaking through Moses, and, and this is before the fall. Chapter 2, verse 24, Genesis. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. Now Paul's already quoted from 2.24 in chapter 6. So it's, we know it's in his mind. And what Genesis 2.24 tells us is that marriage and being one flesh, physically one flesh, go together. If you have a marriage, you should have a one flesh activity, and if you have one flesh activity, you should be married to the person you were doing that with. So you don't have a complete marriage, actually, unless you have that one flesh activity, and you are to have any one flesh activity without being married to that person. So this is, he presents this as one of God's good gifts in battling the sin of sexual immorality. So in verse two, because of your sexual immorality, you should have relations with your wife, with your spouse. And then he goes even further in verse five, don't deprive one another. In verses three and four, he even talks about sex and marriage as, a, as something you owe to your spouse, both spouses. Men owe it to women, women owe it to men. Both spouses owe it to one another. It's an obligation. It's a payment you, you have to make. And, and, and even our, our spouses have a kind of authority over our bodies. I mean, this is, this is a radical concept. And it's a radical in Paul's day as well, because in, in his day, it would have been kind of automatically assumed that the man obviously had authority over the woman, no question. But actually what Paul's doing is say there's a mutual, uh, there's a mutual sense of authority when it comes to these bodily rights. He's not, he's not saying there's no headship. We'll get to that in chapter 11. But he is saying in, the, in this bodily sense, there's a, there's a mutuality. Now, applying these, we need to think about applying this. So f- some, some things to keep in mind here. Well, one is you, you want to think about, the, about the, these words almost like a, like a driver's license. So with a driver's license and a set of car keys, you can drive a car. But just because you have the, kind of the, the legal right to drive this car doesn't mean you can just run over people. So you have to read Paul's words alongside his other words about love and marriage. So for instance, Titus 2.4, train the young women to love their husbands. So we don't, we don't just assert rights in some tyrannical sense. It's an expression of love. So train the young women to love their husbands. And then Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So within that larger umbrella of love, there is the one flesh act. And then the other way we can misuse this passage is if we turn what we are obligated to do into a demand we make on someone else. So Paul is very carefully writing these things as obligations we we each have respectively toward one another. He's not writing this as a demand we get to make. 
you know, kind of a, a trump card we can play at any time. It's not written that way. In fact, you, the train really goes off the tracks if you turn what we're obligated to do into a demand we make. So if you think of the, the call to love, we're, we're all called to love one another. And in marriage, it's even a more elevated obligation to love. So my calling to love, and I'm, I'm aware of my wife's calling. She's called to love me. I'm aware of that. I know the Bible on those verses. I am aware of that. But if I turn my obligation to love and, I, and my knowledge of her obligation to love me, if I turn uh, her love for me into a demand, well, then the marriage, it doesn't necessarily completely fall apart, but the train goes off the tracks at that point. I'm misusing the words that God has given to me. You know, I've got the license and I've got the car keys and I've got the car, but I'm misusing this, this powerful device that the Lord has given to me. Now, being aware of the obligations on the other is not a, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. There is a place to talk. There's a place even to appeal. And there's a place even to get help from a, a wise Christian friend or even a pastor. There's a place to do that. Uh, and, and, a, and if things get into a particular crisis, it's, it's really necessary, in fact, to do that. But day to day, week to week, most couples, most marriages, the thing to remember is, is your obligation to do something does not give you the right to demand something. So in some ways, the application for this is obvious. I won't go into it. But for those who are married, read the book of Song of Solomon if it's, if it's been a while. Number two, marriage and singlehood. It's cruel, isn't it, to say, to say that and then to turn to singles. So now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of, the one, one, of one kind and one of another, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, as I said, we're going to kind of limit our time here. Mike's going to pick up more on singlehood next week. But it is is good just to see what he says here, that it's it's good to be single. It's good to be single. Now, probably the the way to think of Paul himself, he's going to say, be single as I am. Probably the best way to think of Paul is that he's he's, he's a widower. Now, as a Pharisee, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, after all. As a Pharisee, it would have been highly, highly unusual for him to be a single Pharisee. It was uh, Phariseeism and marriage went together. So very likely, at some point before this, Paul's wife died. And so his choice is not uh, marriage versus singlehood, but it's actually, so he's a widower, so it's singlehood versus a second marriage in his case. But what he's saying is it's good to be single, and in some ways, it's not, it's not a complicated argument. He's saying it's good to be single because you can bear more fruit for the Lord. You're anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please him. Your interests aren't divided. So later in the chapter, as, Mar- as Mike is going to share, when it talks about marriage, it talks about you're anxious about the things of the world, how to please your spouse. But if you're single, you have this, this unique opportunity to focus. You're anxious for the things of the Lord, how to please him. And so therefore, it's good it's good. And also, there are troubles that go along with marriage. Marriage is a complicating event in our lives. Uh, a happy marriage has complexities and troubles. And so if those who are married know that. And Paul's, Paul's saying, I would spare you those things, so don't marry. But marriage is not a sin. It's a great gift. He is, does refer to, in verse 7, he says, I wish that all uh, were as I myself am, but each has his own gift, you might have the gift of singlehood. 
or the gift of marriage. One has one gift, one has another gift. It's a charisma. The same, thing, the same word is used as spiritual gifts in chapter 12. Here it's singlehood or marriage. And the gift part, he's not saying that anyone who's single, it's, it's a gift. What he's saying is that some have the gift of singlehood, which means a unique ability to be content. Self, uh, sexual immorality is not a, an overwhelming temptation for them. They have the ability to be pure and be single, be content, and bear fruit for the Lord. So that's, that's where the gift part comes in. And he's aware that not all have that. And if you don't have that, you should marry because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, the truth, the truth is, you, as, as we know, you can't just make marriage happen. You might feel like you don't have the gift of singlehood and yet you're single. Well, we understand. There's a, there's a reality that you can't just make it happen. You, can't, you don't just flip a switch. But maybe there's, a, there's a, an application here in not delaying marriage unnecessarily. You know, some people do have a list of accomplishments they want to make before they marry. And be careful about those kinds of lists of accomplishments. Now, bearing fruit and energetically working to serve people and, and live a, a, a fruitful life before you're married, that's great. And that's, a, that's, that's what Paul would say to do. But some people have a, a kind of list of accomplishments. I don't, I don't want to marry until I've done you know, X, Y, and Z, and then I, will, then I will get married. Now, if one of those things on the list is become spiritually mature, well, please check that box before you start pursuing any of my children. Uh, um, but don't add unnecessary, unnecessary things to that list, you know, list of accomplishment. You know? And so I'm probably not going to be ready for marriage until I'm 35 because of this list of things. And that, that is a thing in our culture, so we do want to watch that. And the truth is, if you, if you know you don't have the, the gift of singlehood, if you're single, it's a gift in the sense that it's grace. It's a grace that God has given to you. You can serve the Lord in this season of your life. There's grace to do that. You might not enjoy it as much as, as someone else. You might have you know, the, the quote-unquote gift of, of singlehood, but there's grace to honor the Lord in this season of your life. Point three, marriage and divorce between believers. So the rest of the passage is verses 10 through 16. And here, even though he says to the married in verse 10 and then to the rest, the the others married in verses 12 uh, through 16, really what he's talking about has more to do with divorce than, than the entire topic of marriage. And he has these two categories that he sets up. One category is marriage between believers, and that's, that's point three. And then it's, then it's going to be marriage between believers and unbelievers, which is point four. And actually what he says on, on point four, marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, a spiritually mixed marriage, that's actually the longest part of this, of this uh, portion on divorce. But we'll start with marriage and divorce between believers. Now to set this up, we do want to recall Jesus' teaching, because Jesus' teaching really is in the background of Paul's words. You don't want to pit... Paul and Jesus against each other when it comes to marriage and divorce. They're on the same page, teaching on different aspects of it, but they are on the same page. So this is uh, some excerpts from Jesus' teaching. He quotes Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We've read that already. So in Mark 10.7 and Matthew 19.5, that's the framework Jesus uses so that, so that uh, the people he's teaching would understand what God's vision was in the beginning. And then he says, 
So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's the basic, that's the basic Paul, uh, uh, Jesus teaching on marriage. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And that word separate, just make a mental note of that. Let not man separate. So you have in, in, in Jesus right there uh, from Matthew 19.6 and Mark 10.9, you have two states of marriage. You either have union or you have separation. The, the, the union is severed divided, which is a divorce. But note that that word separate means divorce in that passage. He's not talking about any any modern practice of separation. You have together and you have separate. You have united and you have divorce. Let not man separate. But then he goes on and Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So even though he's forbidding divorce, basically, the one cause that Jesus allows in that passage, it's not, it's not that, again, it's not that Paul and Jesus are conflicting. Uh, the, the, one, the one cause for divorce, grounds for divorce that Jesus gives in that passage is sexual immorality, sex outside of the marriage. And when that happens, you can marry another. Now, if, there, if you don't have grounds for divorce, and you do divorce and remarry another, well, that act of remarriage is an act of adultery. That's what Jesus is saying there. So that's, that's in the background. And so now, we've, now we turn to verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Just hear Jesus' words echoing in your minds. To the, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. That feels right, doesn't it? Jesus said, let not man separate. And the husband should not... Uh, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, another, another indicator that when it says separate in, in these verses, it means divorce. It doesn't mean separation that leads to divorce. It means divorce. Another indication that that's true is where uh, he says in verse 11 that if she does separate, she should remain unmarried. In other words, the act of separation was an act of divorce. The result of that action was that she became unmarried. And Paul says she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So his command to believers here is clear. Don't divorce. You know, again, we, have, we, we know about Jesus' exception for adultery, but his, his, his command to Christians, to believers here, is don't divorce. Let not the wife separate, let not the husband divorce. In some ways, those terms just reflect what was common practice at the time, which is that, that the man would probably be the homeowner. And so if the woman was going to divorce the man, she was going to leave. She was going to have to leave the house. And in the ancient, in, at this time, leaving the house with no intention of returning was all that was required to divorce. You didn't have to wait one year and then file paperwork with the state to do that. You leaving the house physically and determining not to return was all that was required to divorce. So that's the wife leaving. The husband, if he was going to put away the, uh, if he was going to divorce the wife, would have to send her away, put her away. So she, he would send her out of the house. So therefore, divorce. Whereas if she's going to divorce, again, in most common situations at the time, she's going to have to leave the house, and so she separates. So that's, that's most likely why the different terms there, but it's, they're equivalent. 
In fact, throughout the passage, <clears throat> he's going to refer to the wife divorcing the husband. And then in verse uh, 15, he's going to refer to the husband separating from the wife. So they're just interchangeable words used throughout this passage. Now, what Paul, the, the, the word that Paul gives, which this, as the elders studied this, this was a new thought for us. And, and I would say it just reflects the, the, the conservative evangelical circles we have been in. There are other circles out there. Uh, there are other conservative evangelical circles out there, actually. But in our particular conservative evangelical circle, this idea was not, uh, it, I, I just don't recall it ever being talked about, and that was true for the other elders as well, this idea that if there is a divorce, so he's saying not to divorce, but if there is a divorce, he's not approving of divorce, he's not condoning divorce, but he's just acknowledging that it will happen in the church, and if it does, if it happens, then those two Christians should remain unmarried. There is no remarriage for those Christians. Again, this is divorce when there's no adultery. But if there's divorce with no adultery, he's saying you can, if you do divorce, then you must remain unmarried. Or be reconciled together, which means you remarry each other. But you can't remarry another person. That's an act of adultery if your divorce wasn't legitimate. Now, that's a radical teaching. Now, that's, it's at least uncommon in our day, but in Paul's day, that was a radical thing because it was, it was automatically assumed in Greco-Roman culture and in Jewish culture that divorce was the freedom to remarry. It was, it was inseparable. And so divorce certificates, some way or another, they're gonna say you are free to marry anyone you choose. Now, if it's a Jew who is, who is uh, divorcing a spouse, it's gonna say you are free to marry any Jew you choose. In fact, Paul, at the end of chapter 7, quotes language very, very similar to what a divorce certificate would say. So when he's talking about widows, 739, he says, if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. She is free to be married to whom she wishes. Almost a, almost a literal quotation from, from divorce certificates at the time. But he adds this, only in the Lord. So if, if, she, if this widow is going to remarry, she must marry in the Lord. But if there's no lawful divorce, then there's no remarriage, which is where we are in 7, 10, and 11. So two believers who divorce, and there's no adultery. Now, what about modern separation? So in our day, separation doesn't equal divorce. There are two acts. You separate, and you're separated for a year, at least in North Carolina, and then you divorce. Then you can file for divorce. How does this passage speak to separation? Now, a couple things here. One is, at, at a basic level, it is a good thing that North Carolina does require that one year of separation before you can file a divorce. There is a, there is a helpful, common-sense reality uh, to that that allows people just not to make hasty decisions. You, you, over the span of a month, you're going to cool down. You're, you're going to have some sanity restored. If it's a particularly bitter conflict, you just want to get out, and so maybe you do. But over the months, over the months and the months and the months and the months, maybe you realize I did the wrong thing and I, and I think we should work it out. You go back and, and you as a couple work, decide to work it out. So it does allow time to change minds. But on the flip side, there's also a sense in which that period of separation can just be a, a divorce practice. And so you, you separate for a time and you realize, that, wow, this is nice. This is a lot easier than my marriage. And so then you, you carry on through to the, to, to the divorce 
And so sometimes separation is a really bad thing for a couple. You know, sometimes it's helpful. They get to work on issues that they, maybe they had a hard time working on when they're together. Sometimes it's helpful. Uh, and as elders, we think about that as maybe kind of a kind of strategic separation. It can be helpful. And then at other times, it's really unhelpful. They get used to living alone and they just don't want to, they don't want to go through the headache of getting back together. And over the years at, at, as elders here, we've seen both. Times where it was really helpful and times where it was really unhelpful. Probably the key thing to, re- to remember is, is simply that our separation is different than what Paul is talking about when he talks about separation. So what Paul's talking about is divorce by separation. He's really just talking about how you go through the divorce process. You divorce by separating. In our day, separation and divorce are two things. So in some ways, you don't want to react to a separation like it's a divorce because it's not. It's a big deal, but it's also not a divorce in our day. Now, what do you do? What do you do with the fact that maybe you you were divorced in the past, and if, and and it's you're you're very aware of the fact that it really wasn't a legitimate uh, divorce. You didn't have grounds for divorce. You were young. You just lost patience. You gave up on the marriage, and you you separated and then divorced, and then later on you got remarried. How, what does repentance look like if you've been remarried and really in a sinful manner you've been remarried? Well, the first thing to say is you don't repent by divorcing the second spouse. So I'm glad you're laughing. That's good. Uh, you really don't do that. Uh, so you stay married. But there is a sense in which you own, you own your sin. You do have to own your sin. You have to confess your sin. And you might have to confess your sin to very specific people that were particularly hurt by your sin. And then you seek forgiveness in Christ. I'm not saying it in this order, but these are the things. Own your sin, repent of your sin, confess your sin, seek forgiveness in Christ. Find grace in the gospel. The sin is not the unforgivable sin. It's a big sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. Remember the gospel. Five words. Christ died for our sins. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to use that, those five words. Christ died for our sins. Then he was raised, then he was buried, then he was raised three days later, all in accordance with the scriptures. But because Christ died for our sins, there's forgiveness for whatever, whatever your sin was in the past. There's forgiveness there in Christ. Go boldly to the throne of grace. Receive his forgiveness. And then be a great spouse in your current marriage. Do better than you did the last time. Be a great spouse. Point four, marriage and divorce between a believer and an unbeliever. Verses 12 through 16. To the rest I say, not I, sorry, I, not the Lord. Always a bit tricky when you, when you read phrases like that in the Bible. What he means, because this, all of this is God's word, right? All, all, all he means by that is he doesn't have a specific teaching of Jesus that he's building on. So this is, in a sense, this is, He's getting this from God directly, not from the Lord, as in Jesus, in his earthly ministry, in his earthly teaching, which we looked at in the Gospels. So to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And that's very forceful. Let him not divorce her. And likewise, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Again, very forceful. And then he gives us great encouragement. He could have just left it there. 
God doesn't have to reward us for obeying his commands, which we are obligated to obey because he is Lord of our lives. But here he makes this promise, great promise. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a spiritually mixed marriage in this case. Now you have a believer and an unbeliever. And he's, and he's, gonna, he's basically gonna paint two scenarios. In the first scenario, the unbeliever stays. So believer, unbeliever, together, the unbeliever stays. And, and remember, this is a, this is a mission uh, context. So Paul's preached the gospel. People have been converted. Probably many of them were already married when, the, when one of them got converted. And in that case, one person gets converted, the other person, and now they're married to an unbeliever. And so in this case, some of those couples will stay together. The unbeliever in that case will say, I'm okay, whatever you want. If you want to be a Christian, that's great. I'm, I want to stay with you. And then other unbelievers in that situation are going to say, I don't want that. You got, you got all weird with this Christian thing, and so I'm out. So there's a separation. So the first, the first scenario is that the unbeliever stays. And his, and his words are clear, as I said. The basic command is don't, the believer should not divorce the unbeliever. And the, the, word, the words about being whole, the wife being um, holy because of the husband, um, the, sorry, the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, the children being holy, in that sense, you want to think of, these are, this is being used in metaphorical ways. He doesn't mean holy like we as Christians are holy and therefore we are saints. We are holy ones because God has saved us. He's, he's brought us out of condemned humanity and brought us into his saved people. So in that sense, we are saints. We are holy ones. And Paul isn't saying that they're, they're saved. Otherwise, verse 16 doesn't make any sense at all. You know, how, do you know, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? So the holiness he means is, if you think about the temple ceremonially clean and unclean idea, so if you were ceremonially clean, you could enter the temple as a Jew. If you were not a Jew, you couldn't enter the temple. You couldn't go to the place where you could worship and receive the benefit of the sacrifices that were offered there. And so what Paul is really saying is he's borrowing that temple imagery for clean, unclean, holy, unholy. And he's saying that you, Christian spouse, your family is is clean. They're welcome to come to church. They're welcome to join the people of God. They're not saved, but they're welcome to come into the community. And maybe more importantly, you are welcome to come into the community. Your marriage is legitimate. Your family is legitimate. It's not an illegitimate marriage situation, but it's a legitimate marriage and you have legitimate children. You are welcome to come in to join the people of God in their worship. So remember, we're called the temple of the Lord, right? from John's sermon, y'all are the temple of God. Y'all are the temple, the, the you plural. And so it's that, that's that temple imagery that's coming back here. And then the other promise is about maybe, maybe your spouse will get saved. And I'll quote the Christian Standard Bible because it brings out the optimism that's in Paul's language a little bit more clearly. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. That's a Christian Standard Bible. Now, Paul isn't saying, you know, evangelistic marriages, you know, go find unbelievers, get married to them, because how do you know? They might get saved. Because remember, at the end of the chapter, he's going to say, only marry in the Lord. 
But if you sinned and you got married to an unbeliever, or if you were an unbeliever when you got married and you got saved and your spouse is still an unbeliever, these are, these are encouraging words. These are great promises. So that's 12 through 14 and then verse 16. Verse 15 is a different scenario though. Now the unbeliever leaves. Christian's married to a non-Christian. The non-Christian wants to leave the marriage. And in that case, he says, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Not enslaved means you're no longer bound to that spouse. You're no longer bound to the marriage. And that kind of bound, uh, binding and freeing or bound and free language, it, it comes up a couple times in Paul's writing about marriage and, and divorce. Later in the chapter, actually, two places. In verse 27, he says, are you bound to, bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Again, binding and freeing language. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Binding, freeing. And so in verse 15, he says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound. Now, ESV has translated that enslaved, but it's, it's the same concept. So the innocent spouse in this case is free, free from the marriage and therefore free to remarry. So divorce in this case is allowable and therefore remarriage is allowable. But we want to see that there's a double criteria here. So the first criteria is that one of the spouses is an unbeliever. And then the second criteria is that that unbeliever leaves the marriage. So if you have two Christians, so the unbeliever criteria is not met. If you have two Christians, well then you're back in verses 10 and 11. And his, his command is clear, don't don't divorce. And if you do divorce, there's no remarriage. Now, if the unbeliever stays, so that second criteria is not met, if the unbeliever stays, well, now you're back in verses 12 through 14. The, unbe- the believer should stay in that marriage and trust that God's gonna bring spiritual grace to your spouse and children in that marriage. So it's only when you have one spouse, an unbeliever, and that unbeliever separates or leaves that you fulfill that verse 15 criteria, that double criteria. And this is where it can get very complicated. So as elders, as, as we were looking at these verses and then how these verses have been handled uh, throughout church history, some things came out which were, we found very helpful. And so the first has to do with the first criteria of one spouse being an unbeliever. Here are layers of this unbeliever category. Well, you can have someone who never professed faith. So just norm, the person we, we would normally call an unbeliever. But you could also include there someone who has abandoned the faith. And you can also include there someone who has been excommunicated. So they, they have a profession of faith they might hold to, and yet the church looks at them and their behavior and, we, and says, no, your life does not match your profession. We reject your profession of faith. We regard you, therefore, uh, as, a, as, a, as a false believer or uh, someone who should be removed from the church. You are now excommunicated. So that was 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So that's the unbeliever category. That can get layered with difficulty. And then also we we felt like the second criteria, the abandoning of the marriage, the separation from the household, that can get complicated as well. The basic meaning of separate is when you physically leave the home. It's actually very simple. That's a straightforward meaning. You leave the home and no intention of returning. So it's it's a physical separation. There's no, no great investigation required. Has it happened or not? Well, it's 
the spouse is no longer here, no intention of returning, they've separated. In other words, divorce by separation. But marriage is, marriage is, a, is, is not just a, a relationship between two roommates who happen to live in the same house. So having the same house doesn't mean you have, you've fulfilled what a marriage is. So marriage is a covenant, and this is what we think Genesis 2.24, the picture that is painted there. Marriage is a covenant between two people to live a shared life, to commit to a life of companionship, to choose to love each other, to experience being one flesh, living out vows to love and to cherish one another. Marriage is all of those things. But sometimes in a, in a very broken marriage, one spouse can so mistreat the other spouse that his or her claim to be keeping the marriage vows lacks all credibility. So the spouse hasn't left the home in that case, but in a real way, the spouse has left the marriage. There's no shared life, no commitment to a life of companionship, no effort to love each other, no experience of being one flesh, no loving, no cherishing. And maybe there's even abusive behavior, real cruelty. Now, a spouse doesn't have the ability to just wake up one morning and, and declare, my, my spouse is not a Christian, and she has left the marriage, or he has left the marriage, I can divorce and marry someone else. I have grounds to do that. You don't get to make that decision, actually. And this is, there, there's a critical role for the church here. And so in our church, this would involve a very careful, lengthy due process led by the elders. But it is possible that after that process, there is a judgment made that one spouse is effectively an unbeliever and has effectively left the marriage, even if they haven't left the home. Now, the truth is, saying that is, is easy. You know, it took a minute and a half to, to say all that. But the reality is incredibly difficult, and the process is lengthy. So let me put this all together on a slide for you. This is the double criteria of 1 Corinthians 7.15. So number one, one spouse is an unbeliever. This means that either no faith, abandon the faith, or excommunicated. And the number two, that spouse abandons the believer. This means either literally and physically abandoning, sorry about the typo, or number two, by acting in such a way that his or her claim to be keeping the marriage vows lacks all credibility. Number three, both, both must be established by a due process led by the elders. And, and then number four, the, possi- the possible outcome of this process is allowing the innocent spouse to divorce legitimately and then to remarry legitimately. So that's, that might feel very new to you and and in some ways, it's new to us to think in those, in those kinds of categories. But our, our sense at the end of the day is, is this is an extremely rare possibility. So much has to line up for these two, these two criteria to be met that this is, uh, we acknowledge that it's possible, but we also want to say it's extremely rare. So we don't see this as opening the gate wide to divorce but we do see it as a, as, a, as a possibility, perhaps, in certain situations. Now, there are times that you work hard and work, walk through a very careful due process, but at the end of the day, you simply don't have the satisfaction of clear answers and the ability to make an, a, a clear judgment. Jim Neuheiser, who's a counselor and also a professor at, at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, spoke to our elders this, this past fall uh, TFC elders, and he talked about pastoral situations that were like that, where sometimes you do your best to make a good decision to, de- to decide who's at fault and what's really going on in the marriage, and you simply can't. 
And his encouragement, which we felt like was very helpful, his encouragement was don't force a judgment. In some ways, you take a principled, neutral stance on what might, ha- what might unfold in that marriage. So you might, you might say, we can't support or forbid a divorce, and you might say, we can, and therefore we can't support or forbid a remarriage. So we have a principled, neutral stance. Incredibly unsatisfying and difficult for all people involved, but we also don't want to force a judgment just to make our lives easier either. That's not a, that doesn't seem like a wise approach. As you might guess, the, there's, a, there's just a tremendous need for humility. Uh, uh, it's, things happen in churches, and sometimes you have a little bit of information, and you think you have more than you actually have, and there's almost always just, there's just more layers to the situation. There's pieces of this puzzle. You might have a couple of the pieces, but it's like a 500-piece puzzle. So you just have to be humble about that. And I'm not, I'm not saying blindly trust the eldership. That's not, that's not the appeal here. Nobody's asking anyone to blindly trust anyone. We're just saying that that's a, that's a perspective we want to carry. I can see a few of the pieces of this 500-piece puzzle. It's a lot more complicated than, than, than I think it is. So this is why I said at the front, if you have questions, please talk to the elders. There's a, there's a lot of stuff to unpack here. And we're happy to talk about it. Please don't, please don't think we're afraid to talk about it or hesitant to talk about it. We're, we're happy to talk about it. But to go back to the beginning, true north, true north, that we would live happy and holy lives in our singlehood and in our marriages, that we would live happy and holy lives in our singlehood and in our marriages. Jesus said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They are no, and so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So we want to keep it simple. That's, that's what marriage is. Come together and stay together. And yet we also understand that even though it's simple, it's not easy. And so we rely heavily on the grace of God. We rely on, on the spirit of God. Sift our hearts. Every couple in this room, if you've been married longer than a day, every couple in this room has prayed, God, help me. Help us. Help us as a couple. We're not seeing things clearly. Open our eyes. What are we missing? Help us, Lord. I'll finish with uh, Andrew Peterson's Dancing in the Minefields. Great song. If you haven't If you haven't listened to it, please do, Dancing in the Minefields. So that's his image for marriage. And so he's he's reflecting back on this, this journey they've had together. And so the way he expresses this walk that we have with a spouse. It's a dance, but it's a dance in minefields. It's a minefield, but we're dancing while we do it. So I'll walk with you in the shadowlands till the shadows disappear because he promised not to leave us and his promises are true. So in the face of all this chaos, baby, I can dance with you. So let's go dancing in the minefields. Let's go sailing in the storms. Oh, this is harder than we dreamed, but I believe that's what the promise is for. And I'll just say that promise is that his grace is sufficient for you and your spouse. It is sufficient His grace is sufficient for you. Let's pray.
Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning, all the couples reflected in this room, and ask you for mercy and grace and power to fall upon them. Whatever states of happiness or peace or maturity are they are in, I pray that you, Lord, would bring more grace, more power, more of your spirit so that they would grow strong. We pray that there would be more dancing. They might be aware of the minefields or the storms, but we do pray, Lord, for more dancing, more unity, more joy in one another, more affection. Help them to see one another better, see the gifts, see the beauties of the other spouse. If they're in the midst of a conflict this very moment, then Lord, would you resolve that conflict, whatever it is? As long as it's been there, as deep as it is, would you resolve it, Lord? Bring clarity, bring truth, bring insight. If one person's at fault in the conflict, I pray that that person would become aware of that in a moment. If it's two people who are contributing to the conflict, then let them both be aware of that conflict and the way that they've contributed to it. Lord, you destroyed death. You crushed the head of a serpent. You rose from the dead. And so we know, Lord, that marriage conflicts are not beyond you. Lord, invade our marriages. You are our king. You have all rights and all authority to do that. Would you just invade our households? Would you just seize what is yours? It's all yours. And would you seize it? Lord, let us give it to you freely as your subjects, as your happy, glad subjects. Take our hearts, Lord. Take our time, our money, our homes, every minute of every day. Take it all, Lord. It all belongs to you. Bring joy. Bring joy to our marriages. Bring joy to our households. And for those who are single and want to be married, bring spouses, Lord. Bring spouses. And until that day comes, would you, would you give them grace to endure well, to live well, to be anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please you until that day comes when they can marry another. We pray all this in Jesus' name.